If I may, I woke up this morning, and this is what I heard from the Lord before I had my eyes open concerning this meeting, concerning the day, concerning each of our lives. This is what I heard, grace, grace, grace. It's like major open doors for each of us uh, today. Thank you, Jesus. Taking the liberty. You're taking the liberty brought liberty. So there I was. That random Thursday morning, February 17th, staring dumbly down at my phone. I wish you could have seen my face as I stood there, gobsmacked, the words ringing in my head. He's in custody, Jess, I heard over and over. He's in custody. Joe was still on the line, but for what was probably the first time ever, neither of us knew what to say. I was summoning up a long, shaky breath, when suddenly my phone buzzed again. And there was a Facebook message from a woman I didn't recognize. This was nothing new. Cold calls made and received by yours truly, and probably totaling in the hundreds by now, are the bread and butter of this investigation. So much of my information comes from people who've never heard of me before in their life, people gracious enough to not hang up immediately on an out-of-the-blue call about long-buried memories, about a time they'd probably rather forget. And because Doreen always likes to tap, tap, tap at my forehead, a week rarely passes without some new stranger getting in touch to tell me what they know. Texts, Facebook missives, good old-fashioned phone calls. Sometimes they come in a sprinkle. Other times I have to run to stay ahead of the flood. I thought I had seen the flood before. Turns out, I had another think coming. Hold on, Joe, I said, and clicked on the message. Hi, Jessica, it read. I follow your podcast and would like to remain anonymous. Not sure if you saw this, but Mark Vincent was arrested in Milford last night. My husband and I know him and his wife, Kathy. She'd shared a Connecticut Patch article with a very simple headline. Man stole firearm that I couldn't click on fast enough. And here were the basics. Heading to Milford Christian Church in Milford, Connecticut, to investigate what was called a suspicious incident, the police had come across Doreen's father, Mark Vincent, in criminal possession of a stolen gun. He'd been arrested, the article said, and bail had been set at $250,000. Joe, I gotta go, I said, and immediately called Deputy Chief DeMeo. He had just spoken to Joe minutes earlier, but now all I could get was his voicemail. It was, in a word, annoying. Joe had hit send on that email and gotten a call back almost immediately. But as usual, I had to sit and wait patiently and try not to jump out of my skin. The next day, February 18th, an article on the arrest appeared in the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal. Written by Lauren Salou, Lauren Takoris has since departed for a job not in journalism. The piece was entitled, Father of Wallingford Girl Missing Since 1988 Arrested on Gun Charges. It was mostly a rehash of 1988 and 1989. Doreen's disappearance, the search of Mark's mother Lori's house, the gun discovered in Lori's garage. I was able to eke out one new detail, though. Mark had been arrested in the church's parking lot. 
past and present members of Teen Challenge rushed in with the rumor that Mark had been arrested in the middle of the night, that he'd been found sleeping in his car. And there was another rumor, a much darker one. People were saying that Mark had stolen his son Paul's gun, that it had been Paul who dropped the dime on his dad. Even in this crazy story, where truth is always stranger than fiction, that seemed like a bridge too far, but my sources were insistent. This is straight from Paul's mouth, they told me. DeMeo refused to confirm anything when I finally got in touch with him, so I tracked down the detective in charge of the Milford contingent present at the arrest. He was very polite, but couldn't tell me anything without Wallingford's permission, and pointed me back to their records office. But the Milford detective did tell me one thing. In the course of taking Mark down, the Wallingford detectives had filled him in on this podcast, and he had just become a freshly minted sticky beak. And that, dear listeners, might have evoked a little wry smile. I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Season 3, Episode 2, The Devil Goes to Church. Walk softly, children. A big thank you to our sponsors, JPEX Financial and probate attorney Nia Srodowski. JPEX is a female-owned and operated financial services company. Jamie and Carol can help you plan for all phases of life, from homing in on retirement to planning for your children's education. Whatever the milestone may be, they'll be there to serve you. Please visit their website, www.jpexfinancial.com, or call 860-430-5397 to speak with Carol or Jamie and take care of your financial future. And make sure your estate is in order with Nia Swardowski, a probate attorney who did mine and Joe's estate planning something we've been putting off for years. Nia is excellent at her job and gave us peace of mind for our future. Please call 860-966-9968 or visit ncsestateprobatelaw.com. With Mark safely behind bars and far from the Connecticut and Vermont campuses, current and former members of Teen Challenge lit up Facebook. One public post shared the Connecticut Patch article and copied the group's Greater New England chapter, as well as the chapters in Vermont, Connecticut, and New Jersey. The post read, Well, 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 Marky Mark, only the best of leaders at Teen Challenge. Let's see old Ricky get him out of this. It garnered an almost immediate response from Paul Vincent, sent to me in a screenshot because Paul still had me blocked. This has what to do with Teen Challenge, Paul asked. Nothing, I guess, the poster responded. Just thought they'd like to know. But I forget, they don't care about you once you leave, graduated or not. So the Teen Challenge jury weighed in, with a good handful of men siding with Paul, protesting that Teen Challenge bore no responsibility for Mark Vincent's actions. Maybe God is finally uncovering the things that really need to be done, one man wrote, but TC is not the cause of that idiot. Many pushed back in defense of Mark himself. Even if he was guilty, one man wrote, 
pray for him instead of condemn. Who are any of you to condemn another? Dang, guys, nobody's perfect, wrote another. Mark for sure isn't perfect, but neither are you. If you are a believer, this isn't how you should be treating your brother in Christ. You should be praying for him. Some took it even further, insisting that Mark Vincent was a great guy. You're all fake as fuck, one man argued. You don't even know the story and are judging and assuming. Mark was a lot more real than any of the other staff when I was there. He was probably the only staff member to sit with all the guys every dinner just to be around us and encourage us. He hardly ever wrote anyone up because he preferred grace over punishment. So shame on everyone for judging. The voices in the other corner were louder, at least to my biased ear. Someone drank all the Kool-Aid, I see, one person laughed. Easy fun was poked at Mark's conspiracy theories, like his belief in portals, or his insistence that the government was using Johnson, Vermont as a test site, spraying aluminum into the air to kill people. I've told you before about that particular drum, and it was one Mark had been beating for a long time. One rumor held that he'd actually been committed for it once, to an institution, with Rick bailing him out. And when it came to the aluminum theory, it was like father, like son. One source sent me a photo taken from the back seat of a car being driven by Paul, who had stopped at a red light to take pictures of the sky. Over and over, I saw a boiling resentment of Mark's hypocrisy. Damn, he preached down to me all the time, one man wrote. Hope he's able to look in the mirror. We admitted our sins, another said. We repented. We changed our ways. Mark would tell people he wasn't even in Teen Challenge for drugs. He told me when I first got there that he was in there just to get away from the world and get closer to God. Here's another. No one on here is perfect, but a lot of us have accepted and owned up to our parts in the destruction we caused others. Did Mark ever do that? No. He hid from reality under the guise of being a mentor to other people. Who, oh yeah, he didn't help many of them either. He's already caused enough destruction. And now, in all caps, STOP PROTECTING A PREDATOR. Only one poster raised the specter of Doreen, without calling her by name. You know he had a daughter that went missing over 20 years ago, the post read, and he is still a person of interest to this day. He was real fake, know that. I was there when he first came into the program. Holy Roland coming on. Fake in the front, never letting out his demons. They were eating him alive from the inside out. Everyone knows you can't live in the past, and he was. He never confessed any of his sins around his brothers. He may have hinted around them, but never really fully let them out to let them go. Dude was the devil in disguise. You know the devil goes to church. One response really stood out, especially given what I'd heard over and over about Pastor Rick. Rick was one of the most loyal people many of the men had ever known, they told me. If you do your time and do what he says, they said, he'll always have your back. And without prompting, and without exception, I heard some version of this, that no matter what Mark's truth was, whether or not he had anything to do with Doreen's disappearance, Pastor Rick knew it. I laugh that people say TC had nothing to do with this one post read. Despite repeated threats by Mark against students and interns, let alone the countless cases of reckless driving that put everyone's life on the line who was in the van with him, 
Mark was always given a pass and preferential treatment because of his long-standing friendship with Rick Welch. Complaints were lodged against Mark again and again by students. Mark drove many men out of the program because of his treatment of them in the Middletown Project. None of that mattered, though. It's always great when you know the right people. Mark's brother, Brad, thought that was the case, too, and it was pissing him off. On February 18th, two days after Mark's arrest, Brad emailed Rick Welch with the pastor part of the salutation in quotation marks. Now that Mark has been arrested yet again, Brad wrote, I would hope that you would start to see the light with respect to him. I have no idea what he has on you, but you need to wake up. Now that he's in jail for yet another felon in possession charge, with more charges to come, one would think that you would finally start to get the picture. However, if not, and you try to save him again, you and Teen Challenge will face an onslaught from many fronts. Your attempt to help Mark, who is a major felon, including child abuse, arson, burglary, con artist, world-class liar, and lots more, is incomprehensible and is setting you up for an aiding and abetting charge. I am his brother, and I can say with no ambiguity that he is a total piece of shit, and I'm not the only one, as quite a few of your own members agree. Here, Brad posted screenshots of the Facebook posts and continued, So it's time for you and TC to face the music, as I doubt that supporting criminals was the original intent of TC. And besides, the media loves this stuff. Have a God morning, Brad Vincent. Not more than a few hours later, Pastor Rick emailed a terse reply. Hi, Brad. FYI, I have received your email and heard what you said. Mark is no longer employed by Adult and Teen Challenge Vermont or Connecticut. Blessings, Rick Welch. I was still trying to get more details and catch my breath when on February 21st, I received a very unexpected Facebook message. I had last heard from Paul Vincent in August 2021, back when he'd said that Mark's knowledge of Doreen's fate was too far and too deep to ever come to light, when he'd lectured me on the Buddha and forgiveness and told me people could change, and that he hoped I'd find peace. Now suddenly, I was unblocked again. Thinking at this point, Paul wrote, you might want an interview, thinking I might be ready to give one. I have a couple non-negotiable conditions, but if you're willing to hear them, I'm ready to talk. I'm here, I wrote. Care to share them now? I asked for them, and Paul provided. If we can agree to these, he messaged, I will allow a recorded phone call to be used on all your platforms, where I will answer, as best I can, any questions related to Dory and this current case, but nothing to do with Teen Challenge. Take your time to think about it. Got it, and I will, I responded. Care to confirm that he stole your gun, which you reported to the police? Paul didn't answer, saying only, I will address all your questions in our interview. The first of Paul's three conditions was an easy one. He wanted a public apology from me on Sticky Beak, Sarah Dimio's Faded Out, and all the associated platforms for not respecting his anonymity when he asked to be off the record. There might be some truth there, I had to admit to myself. Before we met at Gouveia in June 2019, I had spoken to Paul for multiple hours over multiple media, texts, Facebook messages, emails, and phone calls, and it's easy to think I lost track of what Paul told me in confidence and what he didn't, 
and what maybe I'd heard from Teresa Lyon. And that is my fault. This work comes with the responsibility to make sure those things are crystal clear. And without knowing what Paul is specifically referencing, I might have blurred the line somewhere. Sometimes I'm very humbly reminded of the amateur portion of the label amateur detective. But I am also a person of my word who tries to hold myself to high standards. And I'm not above an apology. So Paul, you have mine. And Paul's not the only one. I recently learned that the 8033 Wallingford number called Collect over and over, the one I named the Cardinals, was actually Sharon and Mark's on Whirlwind Hill before that number passed to another family. I owe that family an apology as well. While Paul didn't want to discuss Teen Challenge, his second condition told me it was very much on his mind. He wanted, Paul wrote, the name of the person here at Teen Challenge that is feeding you information. Off the bat, that was a no-go. This investigation has only come this far because of the trust I've cultivated with people. The reputation that I've earned that comforts them as they whisper in my ear. To expose even one source would not only be wrong, it would be stupid. It would be like sending up a bat signal that I would cash in my dignity and people's safety to the highest bidder if the price was right. I also had to ask myself why Paul wanted those names. What would the consequences be, I wondered, of being on Paul's list? And besides, I told Paul, I wasn't hearing things from one person. It was at least a dozen now. That information, he told me, was enough to fulfill that condition. I also worried that I'd be signing up for a Teen Challenge distraction tour. I'd learned staffers were working overtime in both Vermont and Connecticut to divert attention away from Mark, to emphasize Teen Challenge's successes over its failures, to create some kind of iron curtain between the organization and the man it had sheltered for so long. Staff called students literally crying, begging them to not speak to me or to do anything that would destroy a good ministry or to add more suffering to Rick's already heavy load. My source, Josh, sums it up as follows. Pastor Rick has so many failures at Teen Challenge. Failure is going to happen. I'm not faulting him for failing. But Mark sums up his poor leadership and his culpability. Years of mentoring. Years of discipleship. And just a few days removed from such a godly influence, he's back in prison. As for Paul, I knew he'd been working his way up in the organization, becoming the director of AV development before moving on to donor development. And besides casting public doubt on Teen Challenge's responsibility for his father, Paul had been effusive on social media in his support of the program. On one Facebook post, Paul praised Pastor Rick as, and I quote, hands down the best man I have ever worked for because he is a shining example of what it means to be a godly leader. I am grateful every day that I am blessed to follow him as he follows Christ. This February 25th, anticipating his birthday in March, Paul asked people to donate to Teen Challenge. I've chosen this nonprofit, he wrote, because their mission means a lot to me, and I hope you'll consider contributing as a way to celebrate with me. Paul had been a public face for Teen Challenge fundraising before. While Pastor Rick never got the father and son keynote speech he wanted, he did manage to record this video, posted on Facebook in February 2021, almost a year to the day of Mark's arrest. 
My name is Paul Benson, and last night I became the newest graduate of Team Challenge Remote. When I first came here 16 months ago, no one thought I would finish this program, but Team Challenge never gave up on me. Thanks to your loving support, we were able to continue this vital mission, which has changed my life and will change many more lives for years to come. Because of Team Challenge and the mercy of God, I have been redeemed. Good day and greetings uh, to everyone. I'm so thankful today for my son, Paul. The Lord has rescued him from a life of running from him. And I just thank God for using Teen Challenge uh, to help him uh, become the man of God he is today. And I just want to say thank you to all those that have uh, donated to this good ministry, some very sacrificially. Thank you so much, and God bless you. And Paul's allegiances have always been unclear. He likes to play mind games to try to be the smartest person in the room, and sometimes to duck a promise or throw people under the bus. I'll never forget him slipping away from Gouveia Vineyards that summer day in 2019, on the 31st anniversary of Doreen's disappearance. He'd headed across the road to get a good look at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road and to take some pictures. But to do so, he donned gloves, an anonymous mask, and I think some sort of overalls or protective gear. This provoked fear and suspicion in 1316's owners, as well as the WPD officers and the one or two cars who'd been sent to keep an eye on our gathering. By the time Debbie and I arrived to clean up the aftermath, Paul was gone and we were facing down four police cars with a fifth tearing up the road. We'd spent the day in the sun with roughly three dozen people to honor Doreen, to share not only ideas on how to push the case forward, but also her story. One of Doreen's old teachers had come out, along with women who'd lived on Whirlwind Hill back in 1988, to lament not knowing how to do more to help Doreen back when she could have been helped. Look, Paul has a thousand times over earned the right to mourn and grieve and honor Doreen any way he wants and in ways that Sarah, Joe, and you and I will never be able to understand or have the right to judge. The special love and the absolute joy those two shared when they were together is palpable in photos, whether Doreen is reading to him, snuggling with him in bed, or holding him upside down with a goofy shrug as they laugh. One picture shows Paul rushing to knock down one of the Duplo cities Doreen would construct for him and Sarah for just that purpose. He was barely three years old in June of 1988 when Mark and Sharon took him, Sarah, and Doreen to that house, where he'd lived for just a few months until his father left and his mother was forced to leave, and where I think he might have been when whatever happened to his sister happened. In a phrase, it's fucking heartbreaking. Paul would later write on the followers of Faded Out Facebook page, I can promise you there was nothing nefarious going on with the masked man. But notice how just that one person warranted more of a response than the disappearance of a 12-year-old girl. Way to go with your priorities, WPD. He then hashtagged call out WPD and justice for Dory, a phrase he himself had coined. But the fact of the mask, if not the man in the mask, had done nothing to further this cause. If anything, it knocked us backwards. 
The owners of 1316 already didn't like me. The police already didn't like me. And the whole thing cast a dark pall over the day and put a weird pit in my stomach. Later, Doreen's Aunt Debbie would try to put her finger on it for me. Mark must know something because he brought him right to Vermont right after that. Right after that? Yeah, right after the Teresa thing, he brought him to Vermont. Yeah. And he's been there ever since. I believe Paul does know. I believe Paul could possibly know. But I, I believe he's so much like Mark that, you know, I, I don't think they'll ever know. Okay. I think he'd hold that secret for his father. I don't know why. He hasn't really done much of a father to him. When he says, too, he has a photographic memory, I believe that. I, I believe that he was, you know, he pays attention to everything, every little detail. Um, it just seems like he does. And it seems like he thinks that he's again the smartest one in the room when he's telling you only one person knows i wonder if he does remember sometimes paul had also told aunt debbie and me that he'd go with us to the police station to show that the murad family and the vincent family and that pesky podcaster who'd been annoying the pd for months were a united front but he balked boggling my mind by going to live with mark's ex teresa and her husband in florida if that wasn't bad enough, Teresa began a targeted campaign to use me to tell Mark she and his son were now living together. That garnered a big no thanks from me as I saw no value in stirring the pot and pissing Mark off more than I already had. Teresa snorted. If Mark Vincent wanted to murder you, she said, he would have done it already. After only a few weeks with Teresa, Paul had packed up again and headed to the last place I would have imagined. New Haven, to join his father at Teen Challenge, Connecticut. And it wasn't just Paul whose allegiances made the situation murky. At one point, sources tell me, Paul and Doreen's sister Sarah Vincent came to see her father on the New Haven campus. Mark prepared to see his sole remaining daughter by telling all the men to watch for her. I know you've probably heard that people think I did something to my daughter, that she's missing, Mark told them. But she's coming for a visit and you're going to see her with your very own eyes. Sometimes, it seemed, the Vincent kids were with their dad, and sometimes not. I didn't want to assume someone's allegiance lay with me, only to fall into a trap. So now we've arrived at Paul's third demand, that I publicly declare that neither I nor this podcast bear any responsibility for the fact that Mark was now behind bars. And Paul wasn't the only one of Doreen's siblings who felt this way. It's been no secret that Donna's younger daughter, Stephanie, thinks this podcast only exists so I can make money and trash Doreen and her family. A few days after Mark's arrest, she posted a particularly, um, let's say, colorful review of this podcast, which was taken down after another member of Doreen's family complained. Sarah Demio with whom Joe and I logged literally hundreds of hours, and who was the reason we all know Doreen's name, then chimed in with her own review, under the default name Anonymous User, but identifying herself as the host of Faded Out. Sarah's message was, in essence, an girl to me, and it made me smile. Stephanie put up another review a few hours later, entitled Trash, 
It reads as follows. No consideration for family. Anonymous, a.k.a. Sarah, is Jessica's friend who wrote her review. Only after Doreen's sister said how much it hurt the family. Real class and consideration. Yeah, really does not care about Doreen's family or her. Who responds to victim's sister like that? It's been two years since the podcast. What did you people do again? Told the story, capitalized off of it. Mark got himself arrested. How trashy to respond the way Sarah and Jessica did. How dare they even fake a review after taking down Doreen's sister's review. These are the characters people are listening to. By the way, I have no need to be anonymous here. Stephanie Boyle is my name. My first reaction to Stephanie's public attack, which hadn't been the first one, was to bristle. It's admittedly maddening and painful that two of Doreen's four siblings have been so vocal against what I'm trying to do. Anyone listening to this podcast knows that I have the support of Donna's family, of Sharon's, and even Mark's. I recently went to dinner with Mark's two sisters, who presented me with a crystal vase purchased by all four of Mark's siblings. Engraved on it is this. Thank you, Jess. Justice for Dory. Love, the Vincents, 2022. I was crying over the gift when the sisters presented me with another package from Brad, wrapped in rainbow paper and sent all the way from Oregon. It's a gag gift, they warned me, and we have no idea what it is. Inside was a little plastic trophy of a gold heart standing on a black base, reading, Jessica Fritz Aguirre, Slayer of Bad Guys, 2022. And dangling from that heart is a little pair of plastic testicles. I sent photos of my gifts to Josh Mankiewicz at Dateline. That's very nice of them, he wrote. I know you will treasure that. Josh's reaction told me he had only seen the first picture, so I wrote back, especially the balls. Mank responded with a cry laughing emoji. I didn't see that one at first, he said. That's a very coveted award. But back to Stephanie. I'm not going to lie. I have really struggled with her open dislike of me and her attempts to tear this platform down. It's caused me some sleepless nights, and sometimes it's hard not to get really angry. But I have to remember that, like Paul, Stephanie's life has a hole in it because Doreen is gone, because someone stole their sister. A few weeks ago, I met Doreen and Stephanie's Aunt Debbie at a Mexican restaurant. When I first met Debbie in January 2019, she told me she was looking forward to retirement, which was a long three years down the road. Now, that retirement is a reality, and Debbie is moving to Florida. She wanted to have lunch and to hand over a big folder of materials on Doreen that she's accumulated over the years, a burden she's finally ready to let go of. A lot of it I had already seen, but there was one article I hadn't. Written for the Danbury News Times in June 1993, it featured Donna recalling how Doreen had once tried to allay Stephanie's fears of riding the big rides at the amusement park. Just scream, Doreen told Stephanie. You won't be afraid. Now, I asked Paul whether I could trust him, and he told me I would have to. We both want to see the right resolution here. We just have different ways of looking at things, he said. It was late, so I went to bed to toss and turn. I was finally sleeping around half past midnight when Paul messaged me again. Been thinking about this a bit, he wrote. 
The acknowledgement of your disconnection from his arrest can come as a, I'm hearing people give us credit and I want to set the record straight. Blah, blah, blah. The apology to me, I feel, would better be saved for the beginning of the interview itself. If all that works for you. I want the truth to be heard more than you do, and I'm ready to share my side of it. You don't have to worry about me burning you. Paul's attempts to further control the terms, when I hadn't agreed to anything, rankled a bit. But I tried to weigh my options rationally. Would anything that Paul had to say be worth handing him my platform, swallowing my pride, and sacrificing my dignity? Paul's Uncle Brad didn't think so. Geez, he doesn't want much, does he, Brad wrote. I'd tell him to pound sand. Perhaps Paul was more valuable before Mark was arrested, but unless there's a good chance that he can add something significant to the case against Mark, I think you'd be giving up too much just to interview him. Just consider the source, and don't waste another second thinking about it. And now another thought was giving me pause. If the rumors were true, if Mark really had stolen Paul's gun, and if Paul had actually dropped a dime on his dad, that meant that Paul was working with the cops. If the case went to trial, he'd be the state's star witness. Even if I wanted to accept Paul's demands, I was concerned that an interview on the podcast might complicate Paul's relationship with the WPD and the DA. It could, I worried, create material for Mark's attorney to use against Paul in court during cross-examination. And while the police and I haven't always seen eye to eye, I've always strived to not compromise or jeopardize their investigation and the DA's case. So I emailed a screenshot of my exchange with Paul to Deputy Chief DeMeo with a request to discuss. Paul got in touch almost immediately. Good to know you still can't be trusted. Never mind about any of this. Cool, I responded right before he blocked me again. In the meantime, Brad Vincent was capitalizing on the fact that his brother was now a captive audience at Bridgeport Correctional. As only Brad can, he put it all out there in a letter dated February 22nd. Mark, God morning to you, Brad wrote. So happy to see you back where you belong, in jail, facing serious charges. What you have done with your life is nothing short of a clusterfuck. And that would have been okay if you'd just taken yourself out but you took so many others with you, and the worst part is that you've never been able to see it since you've always blamed your heinous acts on others. You have no sense of personal responsibility or conscience, and just use people as you see fit. What you did to our family growing up is just one example. Your parents, who raised four good kids, tried so hard to help you and died feeling that they did something wrong. And of course, you're clueless. If you ever were to take a serious look in the mirror and shed all the God bullshit, you would see a real piece of crap. Paul is a good example. Here's a kid that had no chance from the start and is so fucked up now, thanks to you. Your alleged belief in God is total nonsense, since your actions have always been the opposite of those values. You come out of prison after some horrible deed as a born-again and expect everyone to believe all the God bullshit that you spew? Hell, you don't even believe it, do you? It's just a scam, as your whole life has been. You kill your daughter because she wore pants, had a diary, masturbated, dared to defy you, and somehow you're able to justify that? 
And now your favorite pastor buddies, Rick Welch and Jim Loomer, are being investigated, along with Teen Challenge, thanks to you. So the only end to the damage you can inflict on others has occurred. You are incarcerated. You can do no more damage. No one will bail you out. You're fucked. And hopefully, you will also be convicted for your daughter's death, even though I'm sure that it was her fault in your warped mind. The things that you say are pitiful, but funny at the same time. As an example, check out the following communication between you and a TC buddy. And here Brad quoted Mark's text to Josh about asking the Lord what was next. Brad continued writing, really, Mark? You can't breathe? And this was the result of the government dumping poisons into the Vermont air? Or might your breathing issues and reason for splitting be related to the cops closing in on you? But you really wanted to stay with your son since you two have such a loving relationship? At any rate, now that the Lord has shown you going forward, it's time to accept the Lord's decision, right, Mark? God has now revealed his intent unto you, which is, it's time to pay for all the damage that you've done. The next day, February 23rd, another article by Lauren Salou appeared on the front page of the Record Journal. Warrant, its headline screamed. Father of missing Wallingford girl had more than 100 rounds of ammo. More people than I care to count took to local Facebook pages, hollering that that was less than they brought to the range. He wasn't going to the range, guys, I commented over and over, until I realized it was a fool's errand. The article contained a few new details, like the fact that Mark had also been in possession of rubber gloves. But here was the confirmation I'd been waiting for. Yes, it was Paul's gun. Yes, Paul had turned his own dad into the WPD. A few days later, Joe picked up the police report in Milford, forking over a buck fifty for each of its nine pages. That didn't buy much, as the bulk of those pages was solid with thick black redactions. It would take getting my hands on the warrant and the cop's affidavit in support of that warrant to get all the information I needed. Here is what I learned. On January 23, 2022, three days before the WPD's Vermont visit, and in an eerie imitation of his mother Sharon in July 1988, Paul walked into Rightway Sports in Hardwick, Vermont, and picked out a Ruger LCP 380 caliber handgun. Mark had talked him into buying it, Paul would tell the cops. Father and son needed it, Mark had told him, for their safety. Paul told the cops he'd been hiding it inside a foldable hammock under his bed. That was the same place he'd been stashing the knives he'd been busted for earlier, in defiance of Teen Challenge's weapons prohibition. He and his dad had taken the Ruger target shooting together, Paul said, and Mark was the only one who knew where it was hidden, as Mark was the only one Paul trusted. Bullshit, said Josh Austin, Mark's former friend. The fact that Paul had a gun on the Vermont campus for months, and that he'd been hiding it in a black box outside the campus's woodline, had been an open secret. It made other Teen Challenge members nervous, Josh told me, because lots of people didn't think Paul was in the right frame of mind to be armed. A staff member had reported Paul, who was banned from ever having a gun on campus again. Josh was pretty sure he'd seen it with Mark, however, in August 2021, under the passenger seat in Mark's Honda CRV when Mark had driven him to Vermont. The day before Halloween that year, 
Paul had invited Josh to go shooting with him and his dad. Josh remembered the date because he'd also received another invitation to visit a haunted house and had declined both to be with his kids. So Paul had had that gun for months, Josh insisted. But like I told him, Paul produced the receipt to the cops and signed a statement swearing, among other things, to the purchase date of January 23, 2022. Which means, of course, that the Ruger 380, the one the police arrested Mark for, isn't the only gun in play here. On February 10, 2022, about two weeks after Mark and Paul had been questioned by the cops in late January, Paul called the WPD to tell them that his dad had split. Mark had been uneasy and paranoid since he'd arrived in Vermont in July 2021, Paul said, and had been talking about leaving Vermont since the cops had tracked him down there. Mark had recently given Paul some personal belongings, including an antique coin collection, I told you to remember that coin collection, and an old military-style gas mask. Then he'd split in the CRV without saying goodbye, leaving his cell phone, bike, tools, and most of his clothes. Immediately after he discovered Mark was missing, Paul had checked under his bed and discovered the gun he'd bought from Rightway Sports was missing. Paul knew it was Mark who had taken it, he told the WPD, because he lived, just as his father had, in a single, with no roommate as teen challenge typically required. There had been a lock on his door, Paul said, but since Mark did maintenance work on the campus, he had keys to every single room. Based on his experiences with his dad and knowing his personality, Paul said he believed Mark had been afraid that the police were getting closer to making an arrest in Doreen's homicide. Later that night, the WPD received a phone call from none other than Pastor Rick Welch. Mark had come into Rick's office, he said, not seeming like himself, and had abruptly quit. Just like with Paul, Rick told the police, Mark had given no warning he would be leaving and had vanished without saying goodbye. Four days later, on Valentine's Day, Paul called the WPD again to report he'd spoken to Mark the day before. Mark asked how Paul was doing, told him to take care of himself, and said he was heading to Pastor's house in Connecticut. Paul identified Pastor as Jim Loomer, but the police already knew who he was from interviews. Pastor Jim presided over Mark's home church, Milford Christian, just a stone's throw from Mark and Kathy's house, and had been very close friends with Mark for over 30 years. In the past two and a half months, I have accumulated a wealth of information on Milford Christian and Pastor Loomer. Please be patient. I'm saving it for you. What I can offer is more of that May 2018 prayer service at the church, featuring Mark pandering for donations to the Mansion Project that I played for you in the last episode and which you heard a bit of in the beginning of this one. To drive home what a great organization Teen Challenge was, Mark had brought a cohort of students to give testimony. Here, you'll hear him introducing a man named Jake, and both Pastor Loomer and Mark's responses to Jake's words. It's testimonies like that that are very encouraging to me every day, you know, and I get the opportunity uh, to be with these guys. It's a blessing and a half. All 
of these guys I've seen come in, and they and they weren't this pretty when they came in. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Back to the prayer card. You all have a prayer card. We're going to have another testimony. Can you fill those out? And we're going to collect them uh, in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Oh, this is very good. Hey. Here, here's a young man that I remember very well uh, coming in. I, I just need to share this while it's burning in me. Uh, your first name again is? Jake. Jake. Jake? Yep. And God says you're a David. And uh, God says that you have already slain the lion and the bear, and you've come up against Goliath, and you've taken down Goliath. But for such a time as this, God has brought you to the kingdom. For God is yet in the days to come going to bring you into a place where those who are discouraged, depressed, in debt, those who need hope, will come to you. They'll gather around you. They'll need to hear from you the word of victory that he has already uh, birthed in you. And God said that there's coming a time yet where you will lead many. Uh, but keep your, keep your uh, focus on the Lord. Keep your focus on the things that are precious to you. The very testimony you give today will become strength in your own life in the days to come, for it is truly by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony that you and others shall overcome. In Jesus' name, David, Jake. Hallelujah. Wow. I don't think I can stand up after that. You know that thing went in you, bro? Oh. God is so faithful. How old are you? 25. He came into Teen Challenge. It looked like he just came, crawled out of the woods. Can I say that? Oh, it's too late. It's too late. I already. Hey, Joe, could you put that up, please? Thank you. Wow. Who's collecting prayer cards? Do you all have those prayer cards filled out? Thanks a lot, Paul. Wow. Excuse me, Pastor. I'm collecting myself. I'm like hit. On February 15, 2022, police surveyed Pastor Loomer's house and saw Mark's CRV, but not Mark. As they were camped out at Loomer's house again the next day, February 16th, Paul called them to tell them about texts he'd exchanged with Mark that morning, using father and son's own special code words for guns. Oh, so I wanted to tell you this funny timing issue, Paul texted his dad. After all that waiting, Monday, the electronic shop finally called me about those high-charged battery packs. After you left, Mark replied with a smiley face emoji. Paul pressed on. I wouldn't think you should need more than you have. We're not at war. Yet. Mark replied, Thanks, my son, with another happy face. Filing for unemployment online today as I asked the Lord, What's next? Talk to you soon. Love ya. Peace. Later, I asked Mark's old friend Josh how Teen Challenge might receive Paul now, given what he'd done. Paul has nowhere to go, Josh texted me. 
and he thinks he is important at Teen Challenge. If Rick's not asking him to leave, he's not going to leave, and he's probably being hailed as a hero right now. As the police watched, Mark exited Pastor Loomer's house and drove off. After losing him for a bit in traffic, the police soon located Mark's car in the parking lot of Milford Christian. Mark exited the church at about 4.20 p.m. and got into his car, and that's when the cops sprung. Wearing tactical vests, they ordered him to show his hands and exit the vehicle. Without being prompted or questioned, Mark suddenly blurted out the gun's location under the floorboard of the car's center console. It was another eerie reminder of that long-ago day, back in his mother Lori's garage, when Mark had yelled out, That's my gun! and sealed his fate. Mark was brought to the Milford Police Department, and the police continued their search of the CRV, finding the following under the front seat floorboard. A three eighty caliber magazine, a Ruger magazine extender, a speed loader, a bag of rubber gloves, and a brown paper bag with multiple boxes of three eighty caliber ammunition. The gun itself was loaded with nine bullets. A Nokia track phone laying on the car's front passenger seat was also seized. Then the cops photographed the car and locked it up, leaving the key with church staffers to give to Pastor Jim when he arrived that evening. Later, contacted by Lauren Salu of the Record Journal, Loomer said he'd been told the police were very professional and didn't cause a spectacle. But he, quote, couldn't verify if Mark had been at his home and declined to comment on the gun, his relationship with Mark, or Doreen's case. While the gun and bullets were sent to the state lab for testing, Mark was escorted to an interview room at the Milford Police Station. Upon entering, and before the police could even begin to recite the Miranda warnings, Mark asked how they'd known he had a gun, when not even Paul knew he had taken it from him. The cops quickly told Mark that they couldn't speak to him until he was Mirandized, and Mark immediately asked for a lawyer. Now, I'm not a criminal attorney, so don't quote me, but I think the DA could have some wiggle room there to use that statement, because Mark didn't even give the cops a chance to give the warnings before letting it fly. Time will tell. Mark was charged with three counts, one for stealing a firearm and two for criminal possession of a firearm, the second of those being for the bullets. He's being held at Bridgeport Correctional Center on a $250,000 bond. At his February 17th arraignment at Milford Superior Court, the judge imposed two conditions on that bond. First, that it must be posted at a courthouse, and second, that Mark be placed on electronic monitoring with a GPS ankle bracelet if released. Mark's next court date was then scheduled for March 18th. I called the court and learned that it would be remote, but that I could attend as a member of the media. I had to be credentialed as a member of the press, but compared to all the other rigmaroles I've gotten myself into on this case, this particular rigmarole was pretty easy. I had my Zoom link all set and ready to go, when the hearing was suddenly postponed until this May 5th. While Mark had originally had a public defender, someone had now hired him private counsel. Michael Boynton of Lynch, Trimbicki, and Boynton in Milford, who requested a continuance so he could have time to review the file. As always, someone is bankrolling Mark. 
My teen challenge sources tell me that men are not only sending him Bibles, they're also throwing whatever they can spare into Mark's bank account. Because no matter who he is, where he goes, or what he does, one thing is certain, people will always have Mark Vincent's back. But in the end, Mark will always be his own biggest fan. On this past April 22nd, Mark wrote back to Brad from jail. Brad, 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 he wrote, wow, I have not seen so much hate from one person. I'll get to the point. You are not hurting me at all, only yourself, as you let it spew from your heart. Built up hurts from broken dreams over the years. That last letter I did not bother with. I thought to answer you here on a few matters. In regards to your letter, I have an attorney, surrendered gun, they couldn't continue the car search. Wow, and I'm not being nasty, Brad. That did not even make sense. I guess you were drunk. So sorry. Money I stole, you say. Wow, that's news to me. I don't steal. Sorry I didn't make it to the job you set up for me 32 years ago. Things changed here. Brad, come on, get over it. And the thing with your car? Can't recall. Perhaps it was a misunderstanding? 32 years, sorry. Wow, you carry a lot of stuff. Weight's on you. On another note, Years ago, I showed an attorney a copy of both wills, mom's and dad's. He said easy case. I decided to drop it. My brother's and sister's souls are worth much more than the money. By the way, glad to hear you believe all that you hear. Please, do yourself a favor. Don't write again. The spewing only hurts you. And I really don't have that much time to write. I stay very busy. In his love, Mark. P.S. Would like to write more. However, where there is no ear, there is no hearing. Perhaps one day. Sticky Beaks, I'm not going to waste my time or yours analyzing every word of this letter and pointing out how it's absolute garbage. Doing so will only set my hair on fire more than it already is, and I'm pretty sure that was the intended result. I just want to point out one thing. No wonder Brad's words can't hurt Mark. No wonder he has no weights on him, no build-up hurts. And should we be surprised? Because in that entire tirade, he never mentioned Doreen once. But hey, Mark, if you're listening, that's about to change. You can taunt your brothers and your sisters. You can call yourself saved. You can chant all the hallelujahs you want in any church you want. But finally, after all this time, I think you're about to have a come-to-Jesus moment. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you'd like to hear and see more about my quest to find justice for Doreen Vincent, please become a patron for $5 or more at www.stickybeak. There are all sorts of goodies in there, like the video version of my recent interview with Josh Mankiewicz of NBC's Dateline and investigator Richard Novia's report. Becoming a patron will also get you early access to episodes. You can also join the Sticky Beaks Facebook group. And as always, you can email me at justicefordory at gmail.com. That's D-O-R-I. Thanks again. Walk softly, children. Children